Welcome to the Viscast. It has indeed been a while, but we're back. We have an episode devoted to Jesus' teaching on loving your enemies. That's at the beginning of the episode, I say it's one of his most unique teachings, and I'm talking about the loving your enemies teaching from Matthew and Luke. That's where it appears. We uh, will be doing at least one a month here for a bit. Um, We started a new community called Still Processing. And so these podcasts are likely to follow whatever theme we have at Still Processing that month. We meet once a month on Thursdays, the first Thursday typically of the month uh, at Brew Merchant in Holland, Michigan. Uh, It's at 7 o'clock. And it's a really open forum where we talk about important topics, but without a devotion to any particular confessional religion or ideology or philosophy or politics. So we'd love to have you if that's something you're able to do. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy these reflections on Jesus' teaching on loving your enemies. It is... I think arguably the most unique teaching of Jesus. Uh, Everything else falls sort of more neatly into Judaism of Jesus's time, like debates that they were having. But this one about loving your enemies, as far as I know from, from the work I've done on Jesus is unique and isn't, um, isn't found in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. Um, There is some Buddhist teaching that sort of gets close to this, so it's not just uniquely Jesus, but we're not thinking there was any overlap between Jesus and Buddha in terms of their knowledge of one another, that meaning Jesus' knowledge of Buddha. So we don't think he got it from Buddha, but there's some overlap there. So we thought this might be, and, and of course, it's a live issue in right. in our culture. I think in my lifetime, the, this is the moment in when it's, which that teaching has felt most um, apropos, if it has wisdom. Right. Now is the time, as good a time as any in my lifetime for it, for us to think right. about it. Well, I, you know, first of all, just, uh, this is Marlon, um, and, um, had an experience in Jerusalem back maybe eight years ago on a Christian peacemaker team. We met with a group called Rabbis for Human Rights, and the gentleman we spoke with was a rabbi from Brooklyn, but he lived in Jerusalem part-time and in Brooklyn New York part-time, and he was a guy who would go into the West Bank to protect Palestinians from settlers, and he would get harassed and even at times treated violently by both sides. And we were talking with him about this and why he did this, and he said, well, human rights is the basis of Judaism, and that's why he did it. And then we got talking about the Palestinians, and someone said to him, well, what do you do about the commandment to love your neighbors? And he said this, and I'm quoting him now. He said, the Palestinians are not my neighbors. 
they're my enemies. And we're not instructed to love our enemies. So putting that now in the context of Jesus, if you were to roll that back 2,000 years, and if that same sentiment um, was present during Jesus' time, then that adds to the uniqueness of this of this statement by Jesus. But what I would want to ask and what I've been thinking about since we started preparing for this is, who would Jesus have meant? And so let me just say, and I'm going to say this quickly and let Josh respond because he's got a little different take on this, which won't surprise you and which is what makes this fun and interesting, I think. Is my own view of this is that Jesus is not talking about the Romans. He's talking about his own tribe, the Jewish people. So he's talking about perceived enemies in his own circle. And so when I think about that, I think then who would my tribe be? And the bigger tribe would be fellow citizens of the United States and then Christians and then my own community, my own circle. So I would kind of um, narrow that down from the widest. And so I don't, I'm not thinking of that, of this in the, in the way of enemies being outside. Okay. And I, cause I don't think Jesus was. So if Jesus is saying we have to love those within our tribe, which is what I think he would have meant then who would those be? Those would be people that you disagree with, people who you don't like, people who don't like you, people who have maybe wronged you in some ways. I mean, Jesus said, or you've wronged. I mean, Jesus said in one place, or he's reported to say in one place, if you're taking your sacrifice to the altar, and he means in the temple now, not to the collection plate, to the temple, if you're bringing an offering to the temple as a thank offering or or during a festival, and you have someone against, you have something against someone, you're to go to that someone, and you're to repair the rift, and then come back and offer your offering. So I think it's, the reason I think this one is relevant is Jesus is saying we need to love those in our circles Fellow, fellow citizens of the United States, this is how I'm applying it to my own life, then rolling it down to uh, the Christian community, because that's the community I'm a part of, the Holland, Zealand, greater Michigan, and then down even more so in uh, relationships I have that have been strained and broken over the last bunch of years. Um, so... My then then so that's who I see as my enemies, or at least who Jesus is referring to. That that applies to me, and so how am I to do that? That's the question that I'm wrestling with. Now you've got a slightly different take on this, or at least you've got some pushback on it, mm-hmm. and I'd love for you to mm-hmm. go for it. So one of the difficulties that I think we have increasingly and and it's not going to get better is that our worldview and Jesus's worldview continue to diverge in many ways. And so then, um, 
it makes it more difficult than even after you sort of sorted out Jesus's teaching and put it into his worldview to then apply it nicely or at all into our world just becomes increasingly difficult, I think. So, for example, I think you could make an argument that um, Jesus isn't considering a lifetime of loving your enemies as the prescriptive teaching he's giving. Why? Because I think, at least at the beginning and for much of Jesus' ministry, he was working on a really shortened timeline for this experiment, (laughs) meaning he thought God was going to intervene long before now and take care of the Jewish enemies or the people he saw as um, his enemies. So it's it's possible, I think, to think of Jesus as sort of personally nonviolent, but not entirely theologically nonviolent, that he had this notion of, well, at the end of history, God's going to intervene. And of course, someone associated with Jesus' movement um, has described this in vivid detail. It's the book of Revelation that's giving us one person's picture of how it all ends in the end. And it's not a picture of loving your enemies, right? So you're you're left with this tension of like, because I'm, I'm no longer operating with a worldview that's like, I'm just biding my time until God comes back and fixes everything here. And so I'm not going to put all my efforts into societal change because I know I'll never achieve it. I'll just, I'm just, we're all just biding our time until God comes back. I don't think that way anymore. Um, so I don't want to put Jesus's teaching. I, so it's hard for me when Jesus's teachings, I think are coming from there. Um, and I'm no longer working from that place. It does become more difficult to use them, which is why, um, and also Jesus doesn't develop this teaching really at all. He gives it so like a two-liner. And you could maybe say Good Samaritan parable is a little putting a little flesh on this. Um, I think a lot of people would say that. Uh, Again, it's probably helpful. The Samaritan is not... Jewish, but not not Jewish. <laughs> it's a complicated issue, the Samaritans, but they're not the Romans. They're not they're they're associated with Judaism in a way, without getting into the particulars of it. So I it, all that to say is that I it I don't if we are going to find wisdom in loving your enemies, I'm not sure we're gonna find it through an interrogation of Jesus. I think it's like Jesus is the jumping off point for the idea. I think you might find some things in Jesus's life and teaching that give you some greater illustration of what Jesus meant. But then there's this enough divergence between my way of looking at the world and Jesus's that I, I realize I, I'll have to be creative and use other sources in order to, to, to suss out the wisdom uh, of this teaching, I guess. 
Yeah, I think that's really helpful. I mean, I appreciate that, even though, and it's yeah, it's a new th- it's a new thought for me since we started this preparation, and and so I have been thinking about that. I still come back though, and maybe I'm just being stubborn about this that that's possible that there is there is something to learn from Jesus' life from how I view it about how I might love like let me just say like the mega people okay mm-hmm. for me the the mega people might have might the 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 parallel Jesus may may have been the priests or the Pharisees right with whom Jesus has strong disagreements strong enough so that in the end the priests collude to have him killed i mean Mm-hmm. That's how strong the disagreement was. Right. So, including some Pharisees were probably involved. So, I mean, so you can't say they weren't enemies of his. They wanted him killed. I don't have mm-hmm. anybody like that in my life. Right. But I do have the mega people who I strongly disagree with. I have their leader Donald Trump, who I see as a man who is who has devastated this country and is very dangerous, not just to this country but to the world. Mm-hmm. A man who has no scruples outside of his own self-aggrandizement and meeting his own needs. I see him as an enemy. Mm-hmm. I see the mega movement as an enemy movement. And and so um so what I what I what I get from Jesus, what's been encouraging me as I as I face that, is Jesus didn't simply um, back away from uh, confronting the Pharisees or confronting the priests. He he was rather blunt and even harsh with them at times, calling them whitewashed tombs, dead on the inside. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was, in my opinion, and again, this is debatable, he was challenging the whole temple system when he overturned the tables. Mm-hmm. He was saying, "You're here making money, you know. You're you're making money on religion. Mm-hmm. You can make you're making a killing on religion, not just money. You're living up in the western suburbs in luxury, while the people who are bringing you their coins are living down where the sewage flows. Mm-hmm. And that's literally true. You and I both know that from having been. That's literally true. The sewage flowed down through where the poor people lived." from the western suburbs where the Pharisee, where the priests and the wealthy elders lived. So he's challenging all that. He didn't just, and I think that's what we have to do with the mega movement. I think we have to challenge him. The wealthy, you mm-hmm. talk about this all the time, Josh. They're the enemy. Now, does that does that mean I hate them? No. I have to figure out how to love them, how to not hate them. Mm-hmm but to fight them. Mm-hmm. And I, Jesus at least encourages me to do that. He, I don't think he hates them. I don't sense that. I don't know. I don't sense that. It's a fine line. But he certainly isn't afraid to confront them. And, I don't, and, and that's what I gain courage from that. Right. Yeah. And encouragement from that. You know, I don't... I don't hate, I have friends, people I love who are mega people. I don't hate them. 
Mm-hmm. I love them, but I I need to confront them in some way that try to find ways that are effective to do that. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. If, if I mean, we, we can't have a loving your enemies that's a kind of Pollyannish, um, we'll let them trample on us because we don't want to hurt them in any possible way, and we'll let them trample on the rights of the marginalized, which they are currently doing to women and LGBTQ and people of color, all the usual suspects. Um, right now, it's particularly within the LGBTQ. It's the, it's the T. It's the trans community that they're really targeting um, almost obsessively, I would say. Um, and it's wild to me that they can so actively pick on a community of people that already experiences tons of violence and oppression um, such that, you know, the life expectancy of a trans person is quite low, something like 40, um, 40 years old, that they can do that um, and sort of remain a viable party is a mystery that I am unable to understand if I'm being honest and I'm unwilling to put up with. I'm unwilling to not call people out on this publicly. Right. Right. I don't know to what extent to do that. I mean, my big question right now is what's required of me in terms of a sort of critique within my own community. And then what's required of me in terms of patience and let's say love within my own community. Yeah, that's that's really a nice way to put it. Thank you. I like I like the way you just put it. Um, you've been on LGBT. I mean, we've been pretty. On the one hand, it's happened. It's all happened very quickly. I will say, let's say, just gay marriage. It it happened from like opposite like since like major opposition within society, within American society to being legalized, it did um, happen quickly, uh, admittedly. Um, And so I think we all felt like, okay, people deserve some patience. And, you know, within our denomination, there was a lot of patience and waiting and giving people a chance um, to think about it and pray about it and all the things that we say. Um, but I'm just out of patience on a lot of these things, right. to be honest. And right. I think it's legitimately scary and troubling what's happening. Um, and it's it's not both sides. No. Not remotely so. No. The, no. the problem is not extremes on both sides. No. That's... Um, a thing we have liked to say to seem reasonable. Lots of people have liked to say that, and some people still do. You won't be catching me saying that. It's not true. They all lie. Trump isn't the only one who lies. They all lie. Um, that's 
That's um, almost insulting. It is insulting. When it's... people say that because uh, Donald Trump lives a life of lies that he may even believe. I don't know. But anyway, just to sum this part of it up, mm -hmm. I think we're, I'm going to say where I'm at, and I think you're at the same places. We're trying to wrestle with how do we identify enemies in our in our own lives? And then you talked earlier, and I'd like you to comment that because we have a global perspective. So I'll just wrap this up, and then I want to throw this back at you because you said something really interesting as we were talking earlier, mm -hmm. is that one of the things we're both trying to wrestle with, and people in our group are with us on this, we heard that from them, is how do we identify enemies in our own circles? How do we love them without compromising what we think is vital to confront them on? How do we love them um, and still confront what is, we feel anyway, dangerous to especially people who are in the marginalized communities? Well, one thing I would say is like um, confronting them, being willing to listen to them, that's kind of enough, to be honest. That's part of what Valerie Kaur was somebody we used and have used before. She's a, a Sikh. Um, and I don't know her that religious heritage really, really well. Um, but you may have seen people who wear, the men wear turbans because they keep long hair. And um, she talked about the importance of rage was the first one. Um, your rage communicates information, which is what a lot of us are feeling towards that movement from time to time anyways. It's hard to maintain rage. And then um, listen was the second one. And um, the listening is kind of enough. It's not you're going to listen and try and change their mind or you're going to listen and agree with them. Um, but listening is important. And I, I think, generally speaking, uh, the I would say, in my opinion, the left, Democrats, um a lot of progressive churches have tried to listen for quite a while now on these issues. I mean, this is part of my difficulty is I'm like, how much longer do I need to try and figure out why you're willing to support a demonstrably terrible person leading a demonstrably terrible movement? I don't like... There's, there's, I don't know what more to learn. <laughs> I don't know what more listening is going to do. So it, it, I am at a bit of a loss yeah. on that one. Rage, I can do easy. <laughs> Listen, I'd have done. Yeah. Read a lot. Tried to understand. And the last one is reimagine. And I think um, that is a lot of what Jesus was doing at his best was reimagining how things could be. And I think there are people trying to do that now, but it's hard to reimagine up against um, what is an existential threat to our country, to the lives of lots of people, to the environment, to the world, right? It feels like reimagining everything 
in an emergency that might kill you. Like, what's the point, really, of doing a bunch of... Re- First, we have to fight this off, and then we can reimagine. Because we don't know. We don't know what this movement is capable of. We still don't know. And I think you're being naive, in my opinion, if you don't think this is an extremely dangerous movement. Yeah. I think you're being extremely naive. Right. And I, I think we're reaching the point where you have to start thinking about compli- complicity. Um, to, you know, you're complicit in this extremely dangerous movement continuing and possibly doing greater destruction than it already has. You're complicit if you're in leadership in, in, in different places, right? In churches. Uh, I mean, that's part of the difficulty. The community that... Um, if the country, let's say, were to be go into a major crisis, a kind of active civil war, let's say, or constitutional crisis, it will have been brought on by the community that we associated ourselves with for decades. White Christians. White Christians. Yeah. It's impossible without that community. Right. The whole movement is based on their support. Right. Now, it covers for lots of other things like corporate America, but corporate America isn't a big enough constituency to win elections. Right. White Christians still are. I mean, they're decreasing in number, so they're decreasing in power. Every election, there's less of them as a share of the U.S. population, which which they also know. Which is actually not necessarily a bad thing, in my opinion. I, I mean... That's a controversial thing to say, but there's this prejudice that Christians are better people than people who aren't Christians, or people who go to church are better people than people who don't, or a secular society is not as good as a Christian society. None of those things are true, and we and and we can, and there's all kinds of data to to prove that out, and even more importantly for each of us. There's experience in our lives. We all know people who don't go to church who are really, really good people. I, I know a ton of them, and I know people who go to church are good people too. So it's it's and and vice versa. Yeah. Right. So that line that's is nonsense that's a, yeah. to me, and I I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of that prejudice, that idea that Christians have that people who are Christians are better people than people who are not, or that Christianity is the best of all the religions. I think that's part of the problem. At this point, I'm considerably more suspicious of Christians than non-Christians. It's not even close. If I meet somebody and if they seem to me like a white conservative Christian, <laughs> yeah, right. I don't want right. I'm right. not. I'm not down. For right, that. right. And you you immediately put your guard up because yeah. you know they're not safe. You don't think of them as safe. Oh, no. So for oh, me, no. it's the no, opposite. I, I I've experienced Anything. it so many times. They're not safe. Um, yeah, my antennae, because I'm still in the church world more than you are, my antennae is always mm-hmm. uh, up and alert to that. But but let's let's talk a little bit about Brian Stevenson too, and you know, because Brian Stevenson is a guy that gives me some um, encouragement. He says that hope is our superpower. And that, and then Cornell West, who 
talks about the difference between optimism and hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are things that tie into this about how to love your enemies, too. I mean, it's maybe a loose tie, but it ties in for me. He's saying you can't lose hope in that systems can change. Mm -hmm. But you can't, if you're a black person or a marginalized person, you're not optimistic that they will. We can be optimistic, you and me, because we're white males, right? Mm -hmm. We have lots of options in front of us. So I think, too, part of the whole idea of, um, or for my, my, well, I'm trying to work on how do I be uh, a force for good in the world is uh, to be able to hold on to hope, to not, not become, not give in to my cynicism or my disillusionment, which I feel a lot of right now. I'm disillusioned about a lot of things. I think a lot of people are. I think it's the overwhelming sentiment of our time and the correct one. Um, It's just that some of the folks who are disillusioned are also, you know, it's part of the MAGA movement is a, is a, a, at a minimum, like a distrust of the elites. Right. Right. A distrust of the elites. Is that, the same as disillusionment, it's pretty close. So it is an overwhelming, I mean, both sides are very disillusioned, very distrustful, very um, anxious, scared, right? It's just that one side is choosing domination as their coping mechanism (laughs) for these fears and um, disillusionments that they have. and the and, and the other side is you know there's it's it's more diverse so there's more diverse reactions you do get people um, who are rather I I wouldn't say that they want domination but they're more they're like the side that wants the domination there is a cadre of people on the left who um, are sort of radical in certain ways but they know their domination isn't even an option really. <laughs> For anybody on the left to even uh, consider, and so they just the left at this point just has more healthy coping with their disillusionment, which is, I think, rooted in a like we want to stay open to difference. I mean, the left is one of the things that brings it together is this appreciation of difference. Right, they think like difference is good. Difference brings creativity and um, yeah, energy. Right. Yeah. So the left, like at this point, it has to stay open to difference and and to others. Now, you know, the cancel culture part of the left is struggling to know where that line is of saying like we're not going to allow you. We don't think you should be able to speak. It's sort of what CNN was struggling with with Donald Trump in the town hall. Should should he be platformed? I mean, this is really what cancel culture would say. Cancel culture would say, if you platform him, you're complicit in a giving this person a microphone. For in the case of CNN, it was three million people, right? And they would say you shouldn't. Nobody should give him a platform. That's the like cancel. He should be canceled entirely. Um, 
I think that's that's been happening too much. You know, there hasn't been enough allowance for forgiveness uh, on the left. I think that's a legitimate criticism. But well, in general, difference right. is a part of the left. So the left isn't quick to scapegoat because it's made up of people who are being scapegoated, have been scapegoated in the past. Um, so I'm just saying it does happen, but it's pretty rare. And usually it's thoughtful. I mean, CNN has taken a ton of criticism. Should they have allowed him to do this? I I don't know what the answer to that is. He's the front runner for the Republican Party. Like, he could be the next president, which is, of course, part of the reason everybody's de- on our side is depressed right now is because just the thought of it, it's incomprehensible. Not even that, it, just that we are still having to deal with this man. Um, it's incomprehensible. Right, right. So I think I think... Mainly what I want to say is find a way to embrace difference and to stay open to the other and to difference. I mean, loving your enemy is really, if you want to say it in a more broad way, it's staying open to the other, which might scare you, make you uncomfortable, anxious, right? But there's something healthy for human beings and for human society when people stay open to the other it's risky that's the big downside to it right it feels like too much risk sometimes sometimes it is which is why it isn't easy but staying open to the other is sort of i think a shorthand way or or a, a broader way to say love your enemies 